Romans chapter 9. The book of uh, Romans can be divided into three major divisions, right? We have uh, the first section, which is uh, chapters 1 through 8, where is it's basically the explanation of salvation. At the end, we have chapters 12 through 16, which is basically the application of salvation. And then in the middle, we have chapters 9 through 11, where God uh, is, is dealing with the nation of Israel. And it seems as though it's kind of like an interruption in the thought process. Um, some uh, commentators would actually say that these three chapters, 9 through 11, seem to, to not fit with the whole of the book of Romans, and that they're just inconsistent, uh, because you have such a, a, a dissertation, an explanation of salvation in the beginning, and then you have the application of it at the end, and there's just this interruption uh, as God deals with Israel, and as we look at that... Um, uh, so, so as we look at this, as we, as we see this, as, as we acknowledge this, it comes to us to ask the question, why does Paul seemingly deviate in chapters 9 through 11 to discuss Israel? I mean, is it that, that Paul has just so eloquently described salvation and how it all works and the intricate parts of it all, and he comes to the end of chapter 8 and has uh, you know, this intellectual mind explosion, you know, where all of a sudden he just can't think anymore, and so he just starts starts to meander through uh, God's dealings with Israel and just, you know, kind of aimlessly going through some stories. And then, oh yeah, I should probably talk about salvation again. So he goes back to chapter, you know, uh, 12 and starts, you know, laying it out for us. Is that what's going on? Absolutely not. That, that's a crazy thought. To think that way is to cast aspersion upon the scriptures is to say that somehow God's word is, uh, is just this thing that can be um, molded and shaped by man where it's not. It's, it's actually God himself who speaks. Second Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You see here, it does not make sense for God to inspire Paul to intellectually meander for three, chapter, three chapters, aimlessly discussing the nation of Israel. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't fit. That doesn't go together with who God really is. It doesn't go to... That doesn't fit together with the whole and the entirety of Scripture. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's an inconsistent thing in the character and nature of God. You see, this verse here, 2 Timothy 3.16, explains to us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And this, this word, this phrase, inspiration of God, literally means God breathed. That, that as you break it down, it means that God has breathed the scriptures for us, meaning that every single word is purposefully and intricately set in its proper place. That there is not one thing that is there that is not intentionally placed there by God. Not just the phrases, not just the concepts, but the words were selected by God to be there on purpose. Each of these chapters in, in 9 through 11 have a specific angle of approach concerning God's dealing with Israel. Chapter 9, God's past dealings with Israel and his sovereignty. Chapter 10, God's present dealings with Israel and his equity or his fairness. And then uh, verse uh, chapter 11, God's future dealings with Israel and his integrity. And so as, as we look at this, we see that uh, it has a, a very intimate role to play in this concept. We look at back at chapter 8 and we see that chapter 8 ends with this crescendo of of Paul describing for us and explaining to us that there is nothing that can separate us from Christ. There is absolutely nothing that stands in the way between your relationship with Christ. Nothing can can, uh, separate you from His love. 
And then we enter into chapter 9 as God explains this concept through the examples we see in Israel. As I see God's steadfast faithfulness to a sinful, to a disobedient and wayward people in Israel, I am able to trust Him in the security for my salvation because I know that I am sinful, that I am wayward, that I am disobedient. And so if God is faithful to Israel, if God will continue to remain faithful to them and to see them through, then I can trust that God's going to remain faithful to me. He's not going to abandon me. He's going to stay with me. You see, it gives reality. It gives it gives skin. It puts skin on verses like Deuteronomy 31.6 and Hebrews 13.5 where God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And verses like 2 Timothy 2.13 that says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. That God is the one who bears the burden of responsibility. That God is the one who says, I'm not going to leave you. And I see that example in Israel, so it gives me security in my own salvation. Today, we will see God's past dealings with Israel and his sovereignty and the basis of his choice being uh, not on deserving people, but on him. That the basis of God's choice and his sovereignty is upon him, not upon God's people. And so today we're, we're going to take chapter 9, we're going to divide it basically into two pieces, two sections. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18, and then 19 through 33. So let's read Romans 9, starting in verse 1 through 18. It says this, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I... Have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the, uh, the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to the election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. And as we come to that end section there uh, of that, that passage, of this, this uh, section of Scripture, you may realize that we are going to be dealing with some very difficult sections of Scripture today. Some places where the, it has been debated over the centuries as to what this means and what it all comes down to. And here's, here's the one thing that I want you to grasp to this as we're, as we're coming through this, is that God is absolutely understandable. That God has a specific thing that He's trying to teach us through the Scriptures, and it is 
understandable for us to grasp these things. And as it's been debated over the centuries, I'm not here to say that I'm smarter than the guys who've come before me, the old dead guys or whatever, and that, that they just couldn't figure it out, but hey, I got the answer. What I'm saying is, God wants us to know His will. He wants us to know His Word, and we can understand what it says if we just look at what it actually says. Not what I wanted to say, not what some guy told me it said, but if we look at what it actually says we can actually understand what God is saying. And so what I want you to do is to, as we go through this, as we look at this, and, and there's some very difficult things for us to look at this morning, um, I want you to, to keep this one verse in mind. This is the key verse to, the, to, to Romans chapter 9. It's verse 16. I want to read it for you and, t- and keep it as the key. Keep it in mind as we study. It says, so then, Romans nine sixteen. so then it is not of him who wills, uh, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. This is the key verse to this chapter. That, that is to say that if you take this verse and you plug it into the rest of this, of, of this chapter, that this is the key that will unlock the spiritual truth and help you to understand what's actually happening. Uh, if, if we take our own ideas and our own concepts to this, then you get skewed, you get messed up. But if you take what God's Word actually says and you go through it, then you will see what God is, what God is telling us. One of the major concepts through this section is the idea of faith. And, and as we see here in, in Romans 9, 1, Paul begins with this transition verse out of the idea in uh, chapter 8 that, that nothing can separate us from Christ, from the love of Christ. And now he transitions us into Israel. And he says there, in Romans 9, 1, that... Uh, uh, he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness uh, in the Holy Spirit. You see, what he's explaining here is that there is this intimate involvement, this intimate connection between God's people and the Holy Spirit. That your conscience, that inner part of who you are, that, that, that inner, those inner thoughts, that, those inner ideas, those inner voices uh, inside of you, that part of who you are on the inside is connected intimately with the Holy Spirit. At the moment of salvation, um, you become the home, the dwelling place, or the temple of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 6.19 and other verses describe this fact, that you become the dwelling place, or the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so now at this point, God begins to influence and direct your life in a very personal, in a very intimate way, from the inside. Just like we had sung that last song, from the inside out. This is how God's relationship works with us. It's not like God's holding a, a cookie out in front of you saying, go this way, go that way. That's not the way God works. He doesn't work on the outside, he works on the inside. And as he works on you from the inside, he produces in you a heart that is like him, and it it plays itself out in the way that you live your life. It plays itself out in the things that you do, the actions that you take, the places you go, and, and the things that you choose to do. As you grow in this faith relationship with God, you develop the ability to more quickly and easily discern God's voice. Now, that's not to say that you're going to like hear voices and like be kind of a psycho or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. What we're talking about is that you hear this voice, that you can, you can understand a voice even if it's not spoken. And, and I, I got a, a pretty cool illustration about my wife uh, to kind of help understand this idea uh, about the, her voice, even though I, I don't, don't necessarily hear it. Um, don't worry, I have her permission to share this, so... Um, I'm not throwing her under the bus. Um, anyway, uh, so as you grow in, the, in your faith relationship with God, you develop the ability to more quickly and easily understand or discern God's voice. When the Holy Spirit indwells you, he, he does not replace 
your fleshly sinful nature. It's not as though he comes and replaces uh, this fleshly sinful nature. It's actually that there is a change to your relationship with God as he has added to your life. Here's the best way to understand this or describe this. When you look back in Genesis, you look at Adam, uh, there in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they're there, they're created in God's image, created perfect, and as Adam, being created in God's image, did not cease to bear the image of God as he crossed the threshold into depravity, so too it is is with us. That, That when Adam was created perfect and he was moved into depravity through sin, he did not cease to bear the image of God. The the image of God came with him into that relationship. The same thing is true as we understand this in terms of our relationship moving from depravity into salvation. That, That we carry with us the image of God. We also carry with us our sinful nature. We're just added to us also this, uh, the nature of, of the Lord, the Holy Spirit's indwelling. You see, Adam took the image of God with him into that fallen state, and so too we take our fallen nature with us into this new relationship of salvation. Uh, in those terms, we have our own thoughts, we have uh, other people's ideas, we have Satan's whisperings that come to us, or demonic influence, we also have the Holy Spirit who can speak to us, and all of these voices, all of these, as they speak, they can sound almost exactly the same. It's kind of a crazy thing. The Bible actually says that Satan uh, presents himself as an angel of light. If you remember in Luke 4, Jesus is dealing with Satan, and Satan is quoting scripture to Jesus. He sounds almost just like God. It's a little skewed, it's a little off, it's out of context, but he tries to sound just like God. So how then do we discern these voices? Even though they sound very similar, how do we distinguish between what is God's voice and what is not? The number one qualifier to distinguishing these voices is to judge it against God's word. Judge it against God's word. God will never say something to you inside through a thought or an emotion or whatever that he has not already said in his word. If he's leading you through your emotions, if he's leading you through those inward thoughts, if he's leading you through those things, you will always, every time, 100% without fail, be able to find it here. If you cannot find it here, it's not from him. It's from you, it's from your neighbor, it's from your friend, it's from Satan or demons. I don't know what it is exactly. It's not from the Lord though. It has to be able to be backed up through scripture. If it's not, cast it out, don't give any more thought to it. Take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ and say, this belongs to you, Lord, and I'm laying it at your feet. And uh, Lord, you give me your thoughts. I don't want this one. The more, better, the, uh, the more uh, and better you understand the Bible, the easier it is to discern which voice you are hearing. It is quite possible, and it is God's desire that you would know His voice so well that it takes you no time at all to hear Him and to take Him action immediately. This is what God wants to do, that you would understand God's voice so well that He speaks, and you easily transition your life and say, I'm going to take action upon what I've just heard from God. Um, Scott Losey, one of our elders uh, here, posted a comment on Facebook uh, sharing about how uh, Shaq was going to the Celtics. Uh, and there's some random comments on, on this. And, and as I'm reading through Facebook, I'm looking at this, I see that you know he posts this comment about Shaq, and I'm like, you know, he's going to the Celtics. 
uh, you know, good or bad, it doesn't really matter. He probably just wants to get back at Kobe, but it doesn't matter. Um, here's the reality of it. I, I, I look at it, I see that there's like 15 comments. I'm like, who in the world is so interested about Shaq going to the Celtics? So I'm clicking on it, I'm really interested, and I find out that it's a bunch of people talking about random things like coffee and stuff. I'm like, what in the world does this have to do with anything, right? So I look at it, my wife is in the mix talking about, I don't really even know what she's talking about, just random things that have nothing to do with the Celtics. And so um, after about 12 posts or so, I, I read and I find that my wife posts this. She says, well, back to your original question. In agreeing to terms with Shaquille O'Neal on a two-year veteran minimum contract worth approximately $3 million, General Manager Danny Ainge once again demonstrated that there's no time like the present when it comes to this team winning another NBA title. How many women do you know that would be able to express that hard on those desires, right? Well, someone believed her because one person actually was blown away by Micah's deep NBA knowledge. Uh, and so, so I'm like, okay, hello. You know? So I post right back to that. If I know my wife, and I do, she found a news clip and copied it and posted it to her... <laughs> To her, as her post, to sound cool, you know, and like, wife, you're so funny. Uh, and so she, she calls me later laughing. She's, she says um, that she's laughing because I know her so well, and I described exactly to a T what she had done. She had gone online, she found a newspaper, newspaper clipping, she took a section and posted it so she could sound cool to people. And someone actually believed her. What a crazy, what a crazy thought. But here, she doesn't even know who Danny Ainge is, let alone what a... An NBA veteran. She called the Celtics the Celtics, you know? Um, I'm like, she has no clue. What she, but she, was, she sounded cool, and she actually suckered somebody into doing it. So um, here's the deal. The same relationship, this same type of relationship, not only is possible, but is God's does desire and heart for us to have with him. That I can know his voice. That when I see something, when I hear something, when I feel something, when I read something, I can immediately discern that's God. Or mm, maybe it's not God. That does not sound like him. And so here we have uh, a Paul describing this, this relationship that he has with the Holy Spirit. And then he moves in verses 2 to 3 to say this, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. You see, as your relationship with God develops, he rubs off on you, and the way he thinks becomes the way that you think. And as I'm, as I'm reading through this, and as I'm preparing for this, I, I come across this section, knowing that, that this is here, and that Paul describes his, this idea that he, he wishes that he could be a curse for his countrymen. I can immediately um, intellectually understand that. I can understand the concept and I can understand that, you know, he's saying that I want to be a sacrificial person and I want to be a servant and all those types of things. But then I start thinking about the reality of that. I start thinking about what does it take to get somebody to be to that place? Because when I really come to terms with saying, I'm willing to lay aside my salvation for somebody else, that I'm willing to say, God, I will go to hell for eternity for a perfect stranger? I don't know if I really understand that. I don't know if I really grasp that. And God had to bring me to that place in my own heart to say, I, I, don't, I don't know what that's like. I understand the concept. I understand it intellectually, but, but to understand it in my heart and to say, I know what it is to say, I'm willing to trade my eternal salvation to spend eternity in hell so that a perfect stranger can go to heaven. 
That's a crazy idea. It's a crazy thought. I, I, don't, I don't get it. And so I start to think through these things and start to wonder, God, what, is, what does this mean? How do, how do you get to that place? How do you become like that? How do you get this hard? And, and so obviously what we first have to do is we have to start with Jesus, right? Jesus is our perfect example. Jesus is the one who shows us the, the, the perfect way. And so we see that God was so moved with sorrow, with, with grief and compassion about our being trapped in this state of depravity that he was willing to sacrifice himself in order to provide salvation. And in John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And, and, and so we see that sacrificial attitude that, that God was willing in, in Jesus to lay aside his right to be God, his right to the power of God, and to say, I'll be wrapped in, in flesh of humanity, and, and to be born as a baby, and to be living in this world, and to die for these people who hate me, and who spit on me, and scorn me. Jesus is that example, and here Paul expresses the same heart. And we see Moses in Exodus 32, 32 saying the same thing. That, that they're saying, I, I am willing to trade my life for theirs. How? How is this possible? It is only possible by God placing his shepherd's heart of compassion into you. You see, I have the tendency to become so wrapped up in my own life that my salvation becomes something that is merely for my own benefit. That, that I'm so focused on me and that my life is so much about me that my salvation becomes for my benefit. That my life in Christ becomes something that benefits me, that, that I get to feel good about stuff and I get to be a good person, whatever that means, and I get to have this, uh, this access to God and all that stuff and, and that I'm no longer doing those things that I used to and my salvation becomes about me. But the thing that I do is I forget that in that moment that I'm thinking about me, that there's a lost and dying world all around me. That they don't know who Christ is. That, that my salvation is not for me. My salvation is to God. That, that I'm saved to Him, not to me. It's not for my benefit. It's because God is so good. And I, I have a benefit as a result of that, the hope of eternity, the, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in my life. But I'm not the end. Jesus is the end, not me. You see, you're not saved for you. You have a vital role to play in the opportunities of salvation for those who are in your circles of influence. This is not to say that you're responsible for their salvation, but that you are responsible um, to purpose to live Christ before them as salt and as light. You're not responsible to save anybody. Your, your responsibility is to purpose to say, I will, for me, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And I will be salt and light in this world so that people can know who, who my God is. My family, my friends, my coworkers, my neighbors, etc. These are the people that I have the opportunity to present Christ to on a daily basis. You see, it's the attitude of sacrifice. Because sacrifice is the proof of love. Love is the proof of true repentance and salvation. If you're saved, if you're truly a Christian... The fruit of that, the result of that is, is love. And if you have love, the fruit and result of that is, is sacrifice. That's, what's, that's, where, that's where love is found. And so Paul, expressing this grief, is, is come to this place as a result of the Holy Spirit leading him there 
to have this grief and burden for these people in Israel. And so in chapter, in verses four and five, Paul is, is, goes over why he is so grieved and that he's grieved for Israel because they were entrusted with so much from God, that they were the only ones who had access to God. They were the only ones in all of history, in all of humanity, who had any access to God. And, and it was up to them to be the people who would take that message to the world. You see, God chose the Jewish people to be the conduit through which he would reach the lost world. They were to set the example of godliness. They were to call the world to become as they were through conversion. And yet, Israel, being given very much, they were given a tremendous spiritual heritage. They were given the standards for worshiping God. They were given the service of God. They were the only ones who knew God. It was to them that the Messiah, the Christ, had come and, the, and was prophesied to come. And yet all of these things caused them to see themselves as better than these pagan Gentiles. God chose me, and he chose you to go to hell, but he chose me to go to heaven, so it sucks to be you. Um, And they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and thus they made salvation impossible. Because they thought it was about them. They become self-centered in their seeming salvation. And as such, they made it impossible. It's not about you. It can't be for you. It's about Christ in you. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 42 through 48. Luke 12, 42 through 48. Jesus here is describing a great spiritual truth and a tremendous thing that we have to take note of and, and understand in, in terms of this theological concept. That, um, that we'll see outlined here very clearly. In ver- verses 42 through 48, Jesus says this, And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them the portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying and is coming and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and be drunk, then the master uh, of that servant will come on that day when he is not looking for him, at an hour when he is not aware, and he he will cut him in two, and appoint his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, who knew his master's will, and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. You see, Jesus is laying out for us a tremendous deep spiritual truth that to whom much is given, also much is required. And here the nation of Israel was given so much. They were the only ones with access to God and they thought it was for themselves. And so God says, my requirement of you is that I have not given you access to me for you. I've given you access to me so that you can be a conduit through which I can reach the lost and dying world, through which I can spread my love, through which I can perpetuate my joy, through which I can uh, extend this salvation. Jesus outlines the spiritual truth that you will be held accountable to what you know and to what you have access to. And so he describes for us here that this is the reason for his grief, that they had so much and yet they were so close to the Lord but being the furthest away because they 
had they had things upside down and backwards. And so back in Romans 9, we see, uh, just as a side note, I really wanted to go into this, but uh, just really don't have time. Uh, v- verse 5, um, this is a, an amazing proof text for Jesus being God. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons knock on your door, you know, here's a, here's a good one, or if you meet them somewhere. I actually had, this past month, both Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons talk to me, and um, it's kind of, kind of interesting, kind of fun to talk to them. But uh, anyway, I'd like to say a lot more, but I can't. So uh, verses 6 through 9. Let's read that together real quick uh, as we go into this. Here, here, here's what's happening. Now, now that we've uh, kind of brought Israel onto the scene, what he does here in verses 6 through 9, uh, he has um, a picture. In verses 10 through 13, he has a picture. And in verses 14 through 18, he has another picture. So he's going to take three different examples out of the Jewish history and kind of lay out for us this concept or this idea of uh, God's election of Israel as a nation, um, looking at the heritage of, of this nation. So look, let's look at verses 6 through uh, 9 real, really quickly and then uh, break it down. Verse 6, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For, he, uh, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Now, at this point, now that Paul has outlined God's election of Israel as a nation, he goes back into their heritage and shows example of God's sovereignty and choosing based upon himself, not the merit of their forefathers. Though the vast majority of Israel had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, there was a contingent of Jews, and still today is a contingent of Jews who had received him. That's why it says there in verse 6, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. What he's basically describing here is it's not that God's word lacks power in any way. It's that when convicted, people choose to reject God's word in order to believe the lie uh, and preserve their seeming freedom to live any way they deem to be right and true. It's the, it's the same thing that we see played out in our culture and our lives today. That, that there are a multitude of people who want to, in the, in the face of uh, conviction by God's word, want to reject what God's word says so that they can preserve their seeming freedom to do what they think is right. It's, it's the same thing. You see, there's a spiritual correlation between the way that Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah by faith and how people have the right to become children of God through faith. Abraham had two sons. The first was Ishmael, right? Uh, Sarah and and Abraham were given the promise, you're going to have a son. Uh, It's not happening. They're getting older. Things aren't working the way that they're supposed to. You know, they're they're barren. They can't have kids. They just keep getting, they're getting really old. They're way past childbearing years. And so Sarah has a great idea. Here, take uh, Hagar, my handmaiden, and uh, we'll have a child through her. And Abraham's like, okay, you know, I guess. And so, you know, they... He goes off, does the thing, Ishmael's born. God says, that is not the way that I work. It's not by you just kind of making stuff up as you go and saying, here God, bless this. That's not the way that God works. God works based on faith. And so God, they have this first child, Ishmael, the second, which is a result of the works of the flesh or his own ingenuity and his own concepts, uh, him trying to sinfully produce the will of God craziness. The second uh, was Isaac, who was born to this barren woman, Sarah, as a result of faith in God. These are these two children. You cannot be born as an Israelite. You must be born again in order to be of Israel, because Israel came through Isaac, 
the son of promise, the son of faith. Look back at the end of verse 6 and 7. It says, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. You see, Abraham was, uh, was given this promise by God that the Messiah was going to come through his line. That, that he was going to be, uh, be able to bless all of the nations of the earth by the Messiah coming through his line. And this, was, this is what his faith was placed in. And yet he was trying to do that and make that happen as a result of his flesh. As a Christian, your faith is in this promised Messiah. And so, you're actually more Jewish than a nationally born Jew. What a crazy idea that is, right? You are more Jewish than a nationally born Jew because your faith is in that Messiah, so you become a child of Abraham, not a child of the flesh. And so, we move to this next concept, this next idea, verses 10 through uh, 13 say this. Um, <clears throat> not only this, but when Rebekah had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for... Uh, the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. The next example is in Isaac and Rebekah, who were also barren, right? You see that, that uh, I don't know if you knew that or not, but, but uh, Isaac and Rebekah were also barren, unable to have children, and uh, just like Abraham and Sarah were. And so um, they had to trust that God would fulfill his promise that, that was made to Abraham to say, the Messiah is coming through your line, and he's coming through this child of faith. Isaac is born, and then Isaac gets married to this woman whom God hand-selected for him, brought them together, and she can't have kids. So, okay, what do we do now? Do we go out and, you know, try to Hagar it? You know, no, we don't do that. <clears throat> We wait on the Lord, right? So they wait, they're praying, they, they pray to God, and, and they, they seek the Lord, and um, they have to trust that God is not going to let the name die with Isaac, but that he's going to perpetuate his generation. I know what it is to have your name die with you. I have four daughters. Um, the king name dies with me, you know? So maybe I need to adopt. Um, but... Uh, my wife would kill me if she heard me say that. But um, through Abraham, uh, um, Isaac, uh, bo- through both Abraham and Isaac, we are clearly shown that simply being born into their family was not an immediate qualifier for salvation, but that faith is what is required. Right? Both Abraham and Isaac have two sons. In both situations, the younger is chosen, not the older. Uh, and, and it's an interesting thing to see that, that it is God's choice. You see, God blesses uh, uh, Isaac and Rebekah with twins, again show, uh, and he again shows his sovereignty in choosing the younger over the older a second time. These were, were babies, still in Rebekah's womb. And this is when God meets with them, and, and God comes to them, and he says in verse 12, and said to her, the older shall serve the younger. This is at, at the time, if you look back in Genesis, when these babies are, are inside of Rebekah's womb. And, and if, you know, if you've had experience of of having children, then you know what it's like to see the little like weird alien parts moving inside the tummy. Can you imagine two in there? I, well, Gloria can imagine three, um, but can you imagine them fighting, right? Um, the, the, not only are there multiple children in there, but they're fighting. Uh, and this is what's happening inside of Rebecca. And she's like, what is going on? And God says, well, there's two people, there's two nations inside of you, and they're going to be, uh, they're going to be raised up. And the younger is the one whom I'm calling. Uh, you see, the baby still in Rebecca's womb had done nothing to merit being chosen or rejected by God. There wasn't a reason. It wasn't like they had done something. You know, you kicked my my uh, 
uh, my lungs and I couldn't breathe, so you're the bad kid and you're no longer selected. No, it's not that. They hadn't done anything. It was God's calling, not their works, that qualified them. And so here we come to an extremely controversial scripture that states God's love for Jacob and his hatred for Esau. Um, as we tread into this, and I want to take a little bit of time to, to explain this uh, to you and, and help you to understand it. Um, as we go through this, uh, we, have to, we have to kind of tread through this uh, a little bit lightly. And not just blaze through it in order to understand it. So there's a couple things that we've got to understand. First, what must be understood is that it's not hard to accept God's hatred for Esau. I deserve God's hatred. I know that. It's not, it's not hard for me to accept God's hatred for Esau because I am utterly sinful and submerged in my filth. And so it's easy for me to understand that God would hate that. It's hard for me to understand God's love. God, why would you love me? Why would you accept me? Why would you, why would you take me in? Why would you be gracious to me? I deserve your hatred. I deserve hell. And yet you give me your grace anyway. It's easier to understand God's uh, hatred for Esau than it is to understand God's uh, love for Jacob. It's, it's hard. Uh, the hard part is understanding that though Jacob was a sinful wretch, God loved him anyway. I don't deserve God's love, and yet he lavishes it upon me, though he should hate me. Second is to define the word hated. Um, this word hated that, that Jacob I loved, Esau I've hated, this word hated has two possible meanings. One is to be hated, to be detested, or to pursue with hatred, right? That, that's one, of the, one, one concept, which is pretty much where you go when you hear hated. Uh, the second is uh, relative preference for one thing over another, right? Relative preference for one thing over another. And as we look through this, how do we determine which one it is? How do we know which one it is? Well, well here's what we've got to do. We've got to contextually understand it. Not only contextually understand here in Romans 9 and what's being laid out for us, but also to look back at their lives and to look, at, look back and see what happens in the, in the stories and the lives of Jacob and Esau. You see, looking into the life of Esau, I've come to the conclusion that uh, I actually believe that it's both. Uh, now that probably twists your mind into a pretzel even worse. Um, so I believe it's actually both that, that God actually has, it's, it's that God, uh, shows relative preference, uh, from one over another. And that it actually is this detestable type of an idea. You see, God chose Jacob and so preferred him over Esau apart from either of them doing anything to earn it. God chose him. God showed this preference saying, I'm going to prefer Jacob for no other reason. And that's my choice. Um, also, we see that Esau and his descendants, the Edomites, prove to be a people who care nothing for the things of God and so place themselves in the detestable hatred of God. They, they care nothing for the things of God. God says, I, I want to show my line for the Messiah to come through you. And, and Esau says, I don't care anything about that. I, I, don't want any, I don't want anything to do with the things that you care about, God. What you care about means nothing to me. And so he places himself into that detestable hatred uh, of the Lord. Verses 14 through 18, we see this final example of Moses with Pharaoh uh, in choosing, uh, and what he does is he chooses to use each one of them to bring glory to his name. Let's read 14 through 18 real quick. It says this, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, uh, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he 
hardens. This final example is with Moses and Pharaoh. And uh, the, what, what we see here is that God is choosing to use each of them to bring glory to his name, even though they were both set on very different courses. It's interesting to me to note what God says and what he does not say. This is how, this is how we kind of come through this, this section of scripture and understand God's word and, and what he's actually saying through here. We have to see what God is saying. And we have to see what God is not saying in order to have clarity and insight to a seemingly difficult section of confusing Scripture. Look at verses 15, 16, and 18. 15, 16, and 18. And look at what they do say and what they do not say. Each of these verses do say that God will have mercy and compassion on whom He wills. They do not say that He will have destruction and punishment on whom He wills. That's an interesting thing. Never once does it say that that he's going to have destruction and punishment on them. But over and over, it says that he will have compassion and mercy. Ezekiel 33.11 says this, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? The Lord, uh, also 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Here's what we see. God's desire in, in this attitude of repentance. Pharaoh is raised up as a ruler over Egypt for a specific time and specific purpose as God uses him to set his people free. You see, Pharaoh could have d- decided at any point in time to yield his will to the will of God, and yet he chose not to. I'm going to give you a, a bullet list, a, a, just a really quick list of scriptures. You can get them from me later, but uh, it's going to be so fast you can't write them down. Exodus 7, 13, 14, and 22, 8, 15, 19, and 32, and 9, 7, 34, and 35. Here we see nine different times that Pharaoh decides to harden his own heart against God. Nine separate times where it says that Pharaoh said, I know what God wants, but I'm going to harden my heart. Nine different times. And then what we see happening is in chapter 10, it's not till chapter 10 that we see that God comes on the scene and says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. It's not like God came to Moses and said, hey, Moses, here's my plan. You're going to go, you're going to ask Pharaoh, but I'm going to harden his heart, so I'm going to set him up for failure. It's going to be awesome. I set him up, you knock him down. It's going to be a sweet tag team, right? Uh, That's not what God is saying. What God is saying is that Pharaoh had the opportunity over and over and over and over again to come to repentance, but because of his consistent, perpetual decision, God made stiff the decision he already made. That is the idea. So as we close, let's read verses 19 through 23 and share a couple of comments and, uh, and be done for the day. Verses 19 through 33. Um, you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who, is resist- who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does, he not, does not the potter have uh, power over the lump of clay from the same lump to make one vessel of honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles? Verse 25, he says also uh, in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, 
Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because uh, the Lord will make uh, a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a sea, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. You see, coming to this point, the natural response is what we see in verses 14 and 19. That if God is the one in control, how can he then punish me or even fault me for my sin if what I'm doing is what he has made me to do? There are two major problems with this. One, it removes the burden of responsibility from you and it puts it solely on God. That, that you're no longer responsible for your sin. And two, it destroys the nature and integrity of God, basically stating that he is not good, that he is not just, and that um, he is not honorable. You see, God is intimately involved in this this idea and these concepts because God's provision for salvation has always been for all of uh, mankind who would come to him on his terms, not their own. And so Paul references three prophecies uh, to scripturally support his claim. In Hosea, he basically describes how God is taking the world, which was divided into two sections. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. And he's going to make now a new, a new section of the world, the church, which is comprised of both. And in, in Isaiah, God outlines the fact that he extends salvation to the Jewish people, uh, the, uh, even though the majority reject the invitation for their own way, yet a remnant will, be, uh, will accept his, his offer of salvation, thus making up the church comprised of Jews and Gentiles who take the offer of salvation that God extends. Paul brings the entire argument to conclusion explaining this, how it is that some are counted as righteous and others are not. Though the Gentiles were not seeking after righteousness uh, through, through the keeping of the law, they were counted as righteous because of their faith. And though the Jews were seeking after righteousness through the keeping of the law, they were not counted as righteous because of their lack of faith. The object of their faith is at the center of the argument. Your faith cannot be in ignorance and, and expect salvation. You can't just say, I didn't know, I didn't understand and expect salvation. Your, your faith cannot be in your own works and expect salvation. There's only one way. It's belief in Christ. This is, uh, this is the faith that will not be put to shame. As we kind of bring this all to conclusion, Matthew uh, chapter 21, verses 42 through 44, I'd encourage you to, to look at that later, where Jesus describes that if you fall upon the stone, you'll be broken. But if the stone, talking about him, falls upon you, you'll be crushed. This, this attitude in this life of faith is something that's vital for us to, to understand and to live by. And one of the things that, that I want to encourage you with is, is from my own life and, and just understanding this internal voice and how God speaks to you and, and just the way that God spoke to me in, in coming to, to plant this church. And that God s- s- stirred me up on the inside and he began to speak to me from the inside and that, that, that there was this turmoil inside and I didn't understand it exactly. I didn't know what was going on. But over uh, one specific weekend, God spoke to me through three different, three different messages. Uh, in studying his scripture. He spoke to me through my own devotion time. Um, these three different messages, two of them I, I had given, and one of them was on church on Sunday morning. And God confirmed through his word over and over and over again what he was stirring inside of me. And, and it's, up to, it's up to me to take that information and to say, God, I'm willing to follow you on a venture of faith, to step out, 
to find out where God is going to take me. Um, if I hadn't, I wouldn't have been able to experience the blessing of being able to be here with you and being able to share life together with you. Uh, I would still be there, not experiencing the things that God had planned for me. So my question to you today is, what is God stirring you to? What, what's this stirring that's going on inside of you? What is the venture of faith that God is calling you to? And are you willing to seek his word to confirm that it's God speaking to you and follow him on it? 